Hello, and welcome to Let's Farmanize. I'm Michael Wynn. I'm Shane Gerritsen. I'm Cal Vandegrift. And I'm Mickey Ferguson. And today we're going to discuss a day in the life of the dead, Cotter's Syndrome. All that and more on Let's Farmanize. Throughout history, certain conditions have baffled doctors as to the cause of their patient's symptoms. Because of the medical advancements that the world has experienced over the last several centuries, many of these conditions have become better understood and more treatable with modern medicine. Even still, some diseases still bemuse even the most educated medical practitioners. One of these diseases is Cotter's Syndrome, an extremely rare condition first medically elaborated on by Jules Cotard in the 19th century. Cotter's Syndrome and the symptoms behind the unique disease have been speculated on since human beings could conceptualize their own deaths. The answer to what these patients afflicted with Cotter's Syndrome lies behind one's own answer to this question. Am I really alive? Yes, Cotter's Syndrome is a psychiatric phenomenon where a person truly believes that they are deceased and rotting from the inside. These nihilistic delusions have been grouped in with other psychiatric conditions such as schizophrenia and bipolar disorder, but none compare to the experiences of this condition. Here's a quick clip from a psychiatry teacher on YouTube with a role-played patient that has Cotter's Syndrome as he explains how he feels. You said that you feel that you're dead yourself. Yeah. Is that a description of how bad you feel with this depressed mood that you have? Or do you really believe that you are dead? I'm dead. How do you know that? Do you think it's a bit unusual that we're sat here talking and having a conversation, but that you feel that you're dead? And that doesn't really make sense to me when I hear you say that. Makes sense to me. Do you feel that there's any point to life? No. Do you feel that your internal organs, things like your heart, your bowels, your kidneys, are they all working normally, do you feel? No. Dead. Gone. They've gone? Yeah. As you can hear from that audio clip, the patient not only feels dead and, and like, you know, they're, they're rotting, but also it can be that their organs inside, they just don't think there's anything inside them. Like they're just a shell of, of, of a human being that's already dead. Does the delusion sort of continue even if you hook them up to an EKG or an oxygen sensor or anything like that? Or if you inflict significant physical injury? Like if someone came up with like a machete and like slashed their chest open, it's like, yeah, you still got organs in there, bud. They still deny it. Wow. They'll, they'll deny that they're dead. Mm -hmm. Or they're alive, mm -hmm. rather. But they, but like, you know, that's in, what I should in, say. That's, in, in that scenario, but they would still feel the pain, but they still say that. Still They'll just deny it, yeah. But let's talk a little bit about the guy that first published anything related to Cotter's syndrome, and that was the man himself, Jules Cotard. He would coin this condition Delir de Desnegations. It, it, he's French, but I won't even try. I'm not good at French. But it's translated as negative delirium. He published a case study in 1880 of a woman that was convinced that she had, quote, no brain, nerves, chest, or entrails and was just skin and bone. Neither God nor the devil existed. She was eternal and would live forever. 
which is really weird. <laughs> that sounds awesome. Hey man, that just sounds like a great way to live. Is like, hey, if you live like you're immortal, like you're gonna find out eventually that well, you're it's, not. It's a weird the, thought. Neither God nor the devil part again. Yeah, n neither God nor the devil existed. I I can't even fathom getting into the mind of this lady, but it's just like I guess she thinks that she is already in the afterlife, and she's just going to be that way for the rest of her life. She's the coolest ghost in the West. It's, it's crazy. Limitations on patients with this condition limited his research on the syndrome that would posthumously bear his own name. But Cotter made many significant medical contributions throughout his lifetime involving aphasia, which is the inability to speak, and delusions associated with diabetic hypoglycemia. Unfortunately, Cotter himself met an early demise in August of 1889, just nine years after he published this case study, when his daughter contracted diphtheria. It's reported that Cotter unrelentingly nursed his daughter back to health for 15 days until he himself caught the toxin and would pass only a few days later. Jeez. Oof. What a tragic death. Could have published so much more. How'd the daughter end up though? Daughter wound up fine. She lived. Mm -hmm. I'm sure as a father he would have been okay with that. I suppose. Later studies on Cotter's syndrome would prove effective on determining why these patients had such delusions. A study involving CT scans of eight patients with Cotter's delusions showed bilateral atrophy across all eight patients, meaning on both sides. Brain was atrophied, brain had shrunk, but showed no specific lobe having more atrophy than any other. And this, I believe this study was published sometime, it was like 20 years ago, so it was, it was recent. Three of the patients, however, did demonstrate lesions on the frontotemporal portion of the frontal lobe. This area of the brain is known to affect personality, behavior, and language. Other conditions involving this part of the brain include frontotemporal dementia and aphasia, as I mentioned, the inability to speak. Now this is not to be confused with Alzheimer's disease. Alzheimer's happens mainly in the distal parts of the brain, while frontotemporal dementia specifically targets this, that frontal lobe part. So since it's affecting the frontal lobe, you're, you're, you know, it's really affecting your sensory, like, mm -hmm. your perception. Yeah. Yeah, right? Mm-hmm. Dude, were you saying that it's the degradation in all the lobes is uniform? Like, it doesn't specifically target particular mm -hmm. lobes? That's really unusual, because a lot of other yeah. diseases, when they target a lobe, it's going to be pretty isolated to that lobe yeah. almost. Well, it's interesting, because Alzheimer's kind of does the same thing. You see that bilateral atrophy, but the only exception in Alzheimer's is that there's that ventricular enlargement in the middle of the brain. Yeah. While all of the other outer lobes kind of shrink on themselves. Well, that's just the spaces in between the brains. Obviously, if there's less mass, there's going to be more space. Yeah. Right, exactly. Frontotemporal dementia is much more early onset than Alzheimer's dementia, too. Individuals with frontotemporal dementia can be as young as 20 years old when this dementia presents. Some interesting symptoms of frontotemporal dementia are changes in personality and mood, like becoming depressed, self-centered, or withdrawn, repetitive or obsessive behavior, a decline in personal hygiene, and loss of empathy and other interpersonal skills, all of which were experienced in patients with Cotter's syndrome. So in the end, the reason I'm telling you all this is that Cotter's syndrome, although it has been researched now for plenty of years, the exact reason why this happens is kind of unknown. The physiology behind it is not certain one way or another, but there is two major theories as to why this Cotter's syndrome happens. Some other speculations to the cause of Cotter's syndrome, neuronal damage or deficits connecting the amygdala, 
to the other parts of the brain. This is the second one. So the first one being it's caused by lesions on the frontal temporal lobe. The second reason being that there's some damage or other issues with the amygdala. Now, does anyone know what the amygdala does in the brain? Emotions? It is. It is. It's emotions. And that's, it's a piece, it's part of one of the central pieces of the brain. And I, I don't think it's, it's close to the pons, and I don't know if it's part of the pons, but it, it specifically does, among other things, the feelings of emotion. Several case studies involving nihilistic delusions involve patients who experienced a head trauma that lead to the damaging of the amygdala. A similar unique condition known as Capra syndrome, where patients believe that a person or loved one is actually an imposter that is set to hurt and kill them. Capgras syndrome is also caused by damage to the amygdala and frontotemporal lobe as well, and is largely experienced in patients with frontotemporal dementia and Alzheimer's disease. These similarities, however, make some believe that the two diseases might be caused by a similar origin. But first, a quick word from our sponsor. The most recent published case of Cotard syndrome is of a 53-year-old Filipino woman that they refer to as Miss L or Mrs. L. Mrs. L was taken to the hospital after, quote, complaining that she was dead, smelled like rotting flesh, and wanted to be taken to a morgue so that she could be with dead people. Mood. <laughs> so here's a little bit more of the pharmacy-related side of it. At the hospital, she was started on quetiapine and bupropion. Mrs. L was initially reluctant to take medication or eat. If you're claiming that you're a dead person, I suppose the, the need to eat is kind of insufficient. You, know, you don't have it. I don't see why you'd have a complaint though either. It's like, oh, I'm dead, doesn't really... If you really believe you're dead, it's like, oh, it's not gonna do anything. Right. She subsequently developed an electrolyte imbalance. She had hypokalemia and hyponatremia, mm -hmm. which necessitated a TPN repletion. The patient was also very isolative, spending much of the day in bed and neglecting her own personal hygiene and grooming. So TPN is total parental nutrition. Yes, it is. Mm -hmm. So like a nutritive, nutritive supplement mm -hmm. for someone who's unable to eat. It's an NGOG tube for anyone that would know that term. Nasal, gastric, something, get it, gastro yeah, something. Gastric tube. Or oral gastro, you can put it in either yeah, or. Yeah, it's just a feeding tube. It's just a feeding tube, that's all it is. A few days after being admitted, the patient experienced something that doctors believed to be a sinkable brief loss of consciousness. But to play it safe, the doctors took her off of bupropion, as you know that a side effect of taking bupropion is seizures. She was switched to a treatment of olanzapine, escitalopram, or escitalopram. Thank you. Escitalopram. And lorazepam. And over the course of one month, she wound up denying any nihilistic delusions and demonstrated a hopeful attitude for the future. What was the first one you said? I'm sorry, it was... Olanzapine. Olan okay, so Zyprexa. Mm -hmm. Mrs. L's case of Cotard syndrome was not caused by trauma and responded well to pharmacologic treatment. And because of that success in this case of olanzapine, escitalopram, and lorazepam, it is now the go-to pharmacologic therapy for patients with Cotard syndrome. Many patients before her were not quite as lucky, however, as many had to resort to ECT, electroconvulsive therapy, to improve on symptoms. One of the few diseases or conditions that people still use ECT for as a last resort. No matter the cause of this condition, Cotter's syndrome is one of the most unique encounters a medical professional could have in their careers, and has continued to confuse doctors even to this day. Hopefully, with the advancements and money invested in treating Alzheimer's and other forms of dementia, we will also be able to grant Cotter's syndrome a very ironic death of its own. That was really, really interesting. I'd never heard of that. I, I think that's cool that they did find ultimately a working combination 
of medication. So when was this case with Mrs. L? This was 2008. So this was kind of recent. Okay. And I could tell you the specific strengths of the olanzapine, lorazepam, and escitalopram. I don't remember them off the top of my head, but I do remember specifically that for all three medications, it was lower, it was a lower strength than was shown to be efficacious in other patients with Cotter syndrome. Really? Mm-hmm. Hmm. I wonder what they, why they ended up with that cocktail. Because it's all, now you've got me messing up on it. <laughs> say Lexapro. You can say Lexapro. No, I'd hate using the brand names. Escitalopram. Why? Why? Because it's... That's, what, that's the term that most patients are familiar with. Yeah. Oh, you want your Escitalopram? <laughs> i got a bag of Escitalopram in the back if you want some. Um, no. So, Escitalopram, I can understand why they gave that to her. Uh, Lorazepam, though. That's a, what, a GABA positive allosteric modulator? Something like that? Uh, it works on GABA stuff. I mean, it's a benzo. Yeah. It's a benzo. Okay, so yeah, it does work on GABA stuff. I forget the brand name. Ativan. Is it Ativan? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, and what did you say, Olanzapine? Olanzapine was yeah. the other one. I actually don't know what that does. Zyprexa, it's an antipsychotic, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. It is. Yeah. And they just switched her to that because, I mean, she was on bupropion. So the thing was, and I, I read this about, I, I read this a good bit, and they were really confused as to what this syncable reaction was. And what this, was it really a seizure because of bupropion or was it something else? I know I just butchered bupropion, but... It, it, they didn't know for sure whether or not. They, from what I understood, the doctors had doubts that that seizure was caused by the drug. They thought it might be something else, something physiologic, and it was just like a syncopal reaction. It could have been something benign, like she stood up too fast and collapsed, you know, something like that. Gotcha. I don't know if anyone else has experienced that. I personally have experienced one oh, yeah. of those. Orthostatic hypotension? It's, but like severe though. Like, have you ever had one where, I mean, I was like, I was twitching. up and then. I mean, I was quite literally like twitching for like 30 seconds. Yeah, no, it was bad. It, it's freaky. But anyways, they thought it was something like that. She had been in bed for several days and then just stood up really quick. You know, something like that. That's why they switched her to olanzapine. And I mean, really, that was the best choice because she seemed fine after one month so stay this, in the hospital. At this point, did they were just like throwing stuff at the wall as you would sticks because like those three drugs sort of stand out to me it's like okay you have uh, an antipsychotic which is probably a dopamine antagonist you have a uh, SSRI uh, serotonin reuptake inhibitor and then you have uh, lorazepam which is a it basically makes your GABA receptors work better like do you think they're just throwing stuff at the wall see what's stuck because that that kind of covers the brain area that's interesting I knew so the escitalopram and, and lorazepam had already been used okay. previously to this. I'm not so sure about the olanzapine. Mm. And who knows, that might have been the main reason why she recovered so quickly. And if, if it ends up being like a sister pathology to schizophrenia and Alzheimer's, then that would make sense why you would want a dopamine antagonist. It's actually a big, it's a big controversy as to this particular syndrome because some people believe that it's not even... People, some people call it Cotter's delusions and not Cotter's syndrome because a lot of people don't find it as an individual condition. A lot of people group it in with schizophrenia and bipolar disorder. Mm, I can see yeah, that. Yeah, I see that, yeah. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, they're, you know, they, you know, they are, you know, like they are delusional or I guess they really do think that they are dead. Mm -hmm. And, that, that, you know, that's not like schizophrenia. Like, yeah. You know, that could easily be mistaken for that. Yeah. It, it was for that last part about, you know, believing you're dead. It's a really exactly. specific delusion. Yeah. And, and you'll notice that, I mean, these these drugs are pretty much what they would treat people with schizophrenia yeah. and bipolar disorder with. 
So did they say they ever did like an MRI or a type of scan on her, on her actual brain? So they did, they did, I think they did a CT scan, but they didn't notice any major trauma or anything of note, mm -hmm. which is really interesting because that would kind of, that would be against the frontotemporal idea. But see, on a CT scan, I, I don't think, you, you can't see anything neurological. neurological. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's kind of hard to see. So potentially she had some issues with the amygdala. The only question is, I mean, it's not very regenerative, so how'd she recover so quickly? Right. And yeah, so that led to my second question because, you know, you said that she saw improvement within a month. Mm -hmm. It was really so quick. That leads me to believe that it's not technically physiological, like not like not like anything like altered in her brain, like you know, her her actual brain is when damaged in any way, like physically. There so, wasn't immediate trauma noticed. Okay. So it could just be a, an imbalance in the chemical. Yeah, I guess. I hate to use the word imbalance because that implies that there is a, a proper balance for like everyone, um, and that's just straight up not true. Like some, I've known people that have had horrible psychological trauma and they deal with it pretty well. Well, it's interesting that you that you mentioned the electrolyte thing because I was I I kind of wanted to talk about it a little bit more because Jules Cotter, as I mentioned, dealt with a lot with diabetic hypoglycemia, and the reason he did that is because he kind of saw a similarity amongst all of, I mean, the syndrome that would eventually bear his name, Cotter's syndrome, and other conditions where you might lose your sense of awareness. And like, like if you're hypoglycemic, you get very weird, you get very loopy, it, it, and it's because of specifically an imbalance in your blood glucose. Because of this case, I did find some reading that said potentially the biggest issue was, because she presented as a hypokalemic and a hyponatremic. Some people, speculate that a partial cause of this was because of that imbalance that she was so and these were like staggeringly low numbers probably because she wasn't eating for several weeks that also makes sense anecdotally for me because i know someone who had extreme hyponatremia like but refused to go to the doctor mm -hmm. same thing with hyponatremia too if you don't have, if you're really low on salt you go crazy yeah and then i i literally was like you need to eat some food with some salt on it and like we tried that for four days and she ended up, you know, not fully recovering because, you know, she still has other issues. But from whatever she was feeling at the time, like that extreme feeling she was having, that got better. So that's interesting. So just based on that, does anyone... That makes me wonder. So, so you said that, you know, she has been eating for weeks, but like she doesn't know that she is physically, you know, conscious. She is moving around, but she thinks she's dead. So... How did she keep herself alive? Like, you know, did she keep an alarm saying, oh, it's, you know, 12 o'clock, I have to eat now. Regardless of what I'm feeling, I have to eat. I don't think it was that precise. No. I, I, I think this was a little bit more acute, mm -hmm. and I think it was all of a sudden. And I, I think that it was just because the family members started to notice it a little okay, bit. Okay. So it it wasn't was like this was over the course of years. This yeah. was very acute. Mm -hmm. And that, that tends to happen a lot in this in this particular condition. And, and when you're feeling out of it, I'm sure there are times where like she would drop out of the delusion and be like, oh crap, I need to eat. That would go away and then yeah. the delusion would come back. Those moments of lucidity might have been. So was, you know, like, would each case have a different, you know, um, I guess like in one case, one person might not have the you know, feeling a perception that, hey, I need to use the bathroom, and one other person, you know, doesn't have the perception, you know, when they're hungry. Is, you know, is, is, you know each case is different in that case? Or in that I, yeah, I think so. See, when I mentioned that case, there those that study with the eight CT scans, eight is a ridiculously no, low number for yeah. any study to have, but there's just not too many people out there with Goddard syndrome. It's, it's a very rare condition. 
So a lot of studies also are being done, not only on, on um, the other syndrome I mentioned, Capgras syndrome, but also another one, and I hate that I'm, I'm forgetting it, is it's, it's like asomato something, where you disassociate from a particular part of your body, whether that be your limb, a limb, or a, any particular part of your body, your torso, something like that. So they're kind of all grouping them together in their studies. So it's hard to find one specific. And a lot of times, like I said, Cotter syndrome gets grouped in with schizophrenia and bipolar disorder. So a lot of times, if they're presenting with anything like that, they may just rule it as severe depression or something yeah. like that. Yeah, see, like, you know, it's, like, it's hard to distinguish, you know, with all these psychological conditions because, you know, it's, there's a lot of gray area in how to, you know, how to classify a certain uh, ailment to that, you know, to that syndrome, with that, to that condition. Mm -hmm. It's just, it, they all sound so similar. Yeah. And then that makes it more difficult how to treat that, you know, uh, treat that, uh, that case.